What does the UN Human Rights Committee Australia ruling mean for future climate cases? And how does the EU want to pay for loss and damage costs? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckenscare Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today is Tuesday, October 4th. Let's jump right into today's news. Let's start by talking about the aftermath of Hurricane Ian in Florida and South Carolina. The death toll is over 100 at this point, and that comes from a number of different factors. One factor is naturally the intensity of the storm, which reached almost a category five thanks to unusually warm waters in the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico and the increased atmospheric moisture from rising air temperatures. Another factor is the difficulty meteorologists and computer models had in accurately predicting the path and intensity of Ian, which became more intense than expected and curved southward at the last minute. And another factor in the death toll is how many people are moving into hurricane and flood-prone zones. Fort Myer, which got the center of the storm, has the highest death toll and its population has grown by 623% since the year 1970. Florida as a whole has added more than 2.7 million people over the past decade, even as sea level rises and storms become more intense. Similarly, Charleston, South Carolina grew by 25% over the last decade, despite being at risk of sea level rise, hurricanes, and flooding. Officials in Charleston are working on a plan to build a $1.1 billion seawall, and the mayor has expressed interest in rezoning the whole city to end development in flood-prone areas. But the city also recently okayed plans for more than 9,000 acres of residential and commercial development that would locate half of the homes in flood-prone areas. That inconsistency between recognizing the problems and still greenlighting development is a trend in the Southeast. Actually, it's a trend everywhere, as California is doing the same thing when it comes to wildfire risk. The Federal Emergency Management Administration, or FEMA, recommends anyone who lives in flood-prone areas to get flood insurance as soon as possible. Okay, let's check out some climate studies. Methane is a main component of gas and also 84 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. But when fossil fuel companies have excess gas and haven't prioritized storing it for more energy use, they burn it off in an act called flaring. Or maybe they don't really burn it off. A new study looking at the three largest oil and gas basins in the U.S. found that in many cases, flares were extinguished and not relit, meaning all the times they were supposed to burn off the gas, they weren't, just releasing methane into the atmosphere. This multiplies estimates for how much methane the U.S. emits by five times. Yikes. This is bad, but it also means prioritizing flaring regulations could drastically help cut emissions fast. The study says that increasing efficiency and ensuring that every flare stays lit could reduce methane emissions equivalent to taking about 3 million cars off the road each year. No, a recent analysis by the BBC shows further dishonesty by the fossil fuel industry when it comes to flare emissions. By using the World Bank's flare tracking satellite data, they found that any BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil and Shell are failing to report millions of tons of emissions from their flaring activities in oil basins around the world. They estimated that 2 million tons of CO2 equivalent emissions went unrecorded in 2021 alone. 
In addition to emitting methane, flaring also releases CO2 and black soot, which has been found to travel to the poles and melt the ice faster there. Flaring also leads to a higher level of cancer-causing chemicals in the local environment, which the BBC observed in an Iraqi community near oil fields where flaring is common. These fossil fuel companies actually promised the World Bank back in 2015 that they would stop routine flaring by 2030, 2025 in the case of Shell. So far, little effort besides undercounting emissions has taken place. Using Bitcoin is as bad as eating beef. That's the main takeaway from a recent paper published in the journal Scientific Reports last week. Bitcoin mining is so energy intensive due to the use of specialized computers that it has a climate impact comparable to farming cattle or burning gasoline. That's when its relative impact is compared to other commodities against the average market price. As the researchers put it, quote, while proponents have offered Bitcoin as representing digital gold, from a climate damages perspective, it operates more like digital crude. Bitcoin represents 41% of the global cryptocurrency market and uses more energy than countries like Austria and Portugal. In 2021, a single Bitcoin emitted 113 metric tons of CO2. But Bitcoin's energy requirements grow over time as more people compete to verify transactions on the blockchain. A Bitcoin's emissions are already 126 times higher than they were back in 2016. This is an amount of energy use that can't just be moved from fossil fuels to clean energy. It needs to be reduced. And there are efforts to make the process more energy efficient, like switching to proof of stake. Ether is the second largest cryptocurrency on the market, and it recently switched to using proof of stake to verify transactions. This method cuts energy use by 99% compared with Bitcoin mining, so this definitely seems like the way to go. Time for some climate victories. The UN Human Rights Committee recently sided with indigenous Torres Strait Islanders in a lawsuit against the Australian government in Canberra over its failure to protect the group's family life and culture from the worsening impacts of climate change. By doing so, the government violated the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The Torres Strait Islands, which sits between Australia and Papua New Guinea, are some of the most climate vulnerable places in the world. The islanders have been asking for help to combat sea level rise, warming waters, flooding, ocean acidification, and species extinction since the 1990s. While Australia has taken some steps to help people there measure the climate impacts, the committee determined this was far too little too late. Flooding has destroyed families' grave sites, disrupting cultural spaces. This ruling has been called pathbreaking and the most important decision by an international group to date because it's the first time an international human rights group has actually determined that the government is responsible for paying for climate harm. The case also expands the legal precedent for framing climate change as a human rights issue. Australia has 180 days from this ruling, which was September 23rd, to tell the committee how it plans to compensate the islanders for climate-related harm and ensure they have a safe space to live. Over in the U.S., New York announced that it would join California by banning the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035. The states must hit the goal of 35% electric and plug-in hybrid vehicle sales by 2026 first. 14 other states are expected to follow California and New York's lead over the coming months. Parts of New York are already ahead of the curb when it comes to EV charging stations. Manhattan has 320 publicly accessible charging locations compared to only 29 gas stations, according to the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets. 
Other parts of the state still have more gas stations than charging stations, but the gap between the two is closing fast. The reason why Manhattan leads this trend is that the land on the island is just too expensive to use for a minimally profitable business like a gas station. Gas stations there need to have a car wash or convenience store attached to survive. San Francisco is the same way with its EV charging stations beating out gas stations by 47 locations. But it is also important to remember that EV charging stations will also represent a fundamental shift in our pit stop experiences as they allow drivers to charge their cars at home or work rather than having to search for a gas station. Finally, California is reducing its water use in a truly impactful way. No, I'm not talking about inefficient agriculture practices or stopping bottled water companies from taking our water. I'm talking about adding a flow restrictor to rich people's pipes. The Las Virginis Water District has begun putting water restrictors on certain homes in Calabasas and Hidden Hills that were still being wasteful while we're in the worst drought in 1200 years. The district imposed a 50% outdoor watering cutback a little while back, but some celebrities haven't really cared about receiving penalties. Some celebrities who have been bestowed this honor include the comedian Kevin Hart, the rapper The Game, and Kourtney Kardashian's ex, Scott Disick. Other celebrities posed to get one of these stainless steel discs with a hole in the middle include Kim Kardashian, Sylvester Stallone, and Madonna. Homes with flow restrictors will only get 60% of their usual water supply. The device takes 10 minutes to install, and then it's sealed and garnished with a sign that says any tampering will result in a $2,500 fine. So far, no celebrities have messed with these devices, so it has effectively forced them to change their water habits. Over to the world of finance, the U.S. Federal Reserve announced that it will assess the climate risks of six of the country's largest banks via a pilot program starting next year. These banks are Citigroup, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, and Goldman Sachs. These banks will be stress-tested with hypothetical climate scenarios to see how well they do. The Fed said that the point of this plan is, quote, designed to enhance the ability of supervisors and firms to measure and manage climate-related financial risks risks, not to trigger stricter capital or supervisory requirements. The Federal Reserve has been behind looking at financial risk compared to its international peers like Bank of England and the European Central Bank. Let's continue with the financial theme as we move into the climate fails now. Remember, don't get despondent, get mad. Politico recently obtained a draft negotiating plan from the EU that shows the bloc doesn't plan to support developing countries' loss and damages funds idea. Poorer countries want wealthier countries to help them pay for recovery efforts after extreme weather events like flooding, wildfires, and drought because the rich countries are disproportionately responsible for climate change. Wealthy countries already promised back in 2016 to provide $100 billion a year starting in 2020 to help poorer countries transition to clean energy, but they still have failed to actually come up with that much money. Now developing countries want them to keep that promise but add on another fund as their situations grow more dire. This call to action has grown quite loud, particularly after the devastating floods in Pakistan. The draft document, which will be finalized today, agrees that the EU needs to help pay for damages, but wants to do it in the form of a global shield insurance initiative rather than the fund. This initiative has been criticized by many as a way to keep emerging economies dependent on wealthier countries through the insurance premiums. Meanwhile, the top equity firm Carlyle's emissions declaration isn't quite adding up. 
It casually left out emissions associated with its largest fossil fuel investment, NGP. NGP, originally called Natural Gas Partners, is also an investment firm and represents 8% of Carlyle's total earnings over the last five years. NGP has been raking in the dough, though, during the Russia-Ukrainian war, making Carlyle about $512 million in the first half of this year. That's more than 20% of Carlyle's total revenue and 49% of its profit. It's likely that Carlyle's future carbon-heavy investments will be made through NGP in the U.S. and the Carlyle International Energy Partners Program outside of the U.S. Yet somehow Carlyle claimed it doesn't include NGP in its emissions portfolio because their relationship is passive. Now, legally, Carlyle didn't actually do anything wrong because this emissions information is voluntary to collect. But it has encouraged some experts to call for the guidelines provided by the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures created in 2017 to be tightened. Mexico has been officially deemed the deadliest country for environmental activists and land defenders in the world, according to Global Witness. 54 activists were killed in Mexico last year, compared to 33 in Colombia and 26 in Brazil. Overall, Latin America accounts for two-thirds of the 200 environmental activist murders reported in 2021. Many of these activists are indigenous people like those in the Yaqui indigenous group in Mexico. Last month, Mexican President Obrador apologized to the group for past abuses, saying the government will invest in infrastructure to help them. But he refused to stop siphoning off the tribe's water supply, which is one of the things the Yaqui people are actually fighting to protect. Now, several courts have sided with the Yaqui people on this matter, but that hasn't stopped Obrador from siphoning off that water. Now let's look at the U.S. agriculture industry. The Inflation Reduction Act recently allocated $12 billion to go towards climate-smart agriculture practices as the industry accounts for about 11% of the country's emissions. But can the U.S. Department of Agriculture or USDA be trusted to use the money in the best way? A recent environmental working group analysis showed that out of the $7.4 billion given to farmers by the USDA for climate smart farming in 2017 to 2020, very little of that actually went towards practices that helped the land take up carbon. Climate smart farming practices come in many different forms from planting cover crops to reducing pesticide use to ending tilling to creating wild spaces. The environmental working group created a database with the USDA's spending information via its five largest conservation programs and a determined that two of them in particular need reforming. Those are the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, or EQIP, and the Conservation Stewardship Program, or CSP. Less than a quarter of the money allocated to EQIP went to climate smart practices, which most of which was cover crops. Now, cover crops can be good if they are used consistently and the soil isn't tilled afterwards, though that's not always what happens. Furthermore, other parts of the money were used to fund practices that actually would do more harm than good, like increasing irrigation infrastructure, which can exacerbate water shortages. Meanwhile, the CSP used only 0.3% of its funding to support climate-smart agriculture. That's like nothing. Throughout this research, the Environmental Working Group also had trouble with the USDA's data transparency and had to issue several FOIA requests to gain access to this public information. The group suggested that Congress reforms those two programs and prohibits the USDA from spending money on activities that increase emissions. They also called for better data transparency moving forward. And the Supreme Court is back, baby! 
back in session starting yesterday. So let's finish up today's episode looking at the first of many climate related cases that the Supreme Court will judge on. So yesterday, the Supreme Court heard opening arguments from Sackett v. EPA, which could determine the future of the nation's wetlands and waterways. Yeah, that's serious. Basically, the Sackett side represents Idaho landlords that want a more restrictive definition to waters in the U.S., also known as WOTUS. They don't want to deal with costly federal permitting requirements and instead want wetlands on private lands to be considered their own water bodies instead of recognizing that they're connected to the larger water bodies that can extend outside private land and sometimes between states, hence why it's under federal jurisdiction. Wetlands are particularly important ecosystems to protect because they store lots of carbon and methane, are unique biodiversity hubs, and can reduce an area's vulnerability to flooding. If the landlords win this case, this could significantly weaken the Clean Water Act's authority. Many legal experts say this probably wouldn't have even been given the time of day if not for the court's supermajority. The Biden administration originally urged the judges to reject the case until the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, and the American Corps of Engineers had time to craft a new rule for WOTUS. But this could be another case where the judges rule on a hypothetical before government agencies have a time to even establish their own positions on the matter. So we better keep an eye on this. There probably won't be an actual decision until next year. And that was your climate recap for Tuesday, October 4th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beckosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.